Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you wondrously created and yet more wondrously restored the dignity of our human nature. In your mercy, let us share the divine life of Jesus Christ who came to share our humanity and who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, some of you, like me, did not grow up celebrating the traditional Christian calendar, maybe apart from major feast days like Christmas and Easter. But the Christian calendar is simply an attempt to take the whole life of Jesus and superimpose it on our own yearly calendar so that every year we walk with Jesus from birth to death to resurrection through all the events of his earthly ministry. And as you well know, we celebrate the birth of our Lord on December 25th. And since Jewish boys were circumcised eight days after birth, the church has historically celebrated this circumcision and naming of Jesus on January 1st. Now, I understand that this seems like a really weird thing to celebrate and a weird thing to talk about. The circumcision of Jesus? I'm sure you understand, though, that it wasn't a strange thing for Jews. And Jewish people still celebrate the circumcision of a son with a feast. It's not unlike when we baptize a child or hold a baby shower. So it shouldn't surprise us that the evangelist Luke thought it worthy of costly ink and parchment to record in Luke 2, verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Luke is showing us that Joseph and Mary were faithful Jews who obeyed God's law and who celebrated the birth of their son as faithful Jews would. But again, I raise the question, is it really that important? I mean, only one of the four Gospels even records Jesus' circumcision. And even here, Luke only devotes one sentence to it, Luke 2.21. It's never mentioned anywhere else. Is the circumcision of Jesus really worth one whole feast day? Well, historically, the church has deemed that it is. And that is because our fathers in the faith understood the circumcision of Jesus has deeper meaning and significance than it might at first appear. This is because they knew their Old Testaments better than we do. They were saturated in it. They knew what circumcision itself represents far more than some arbitrary rite of passage or ceremony, they knew the circumcision was all about God's plan to redeem and restore humanity itself. And so when they contemplated the circumcision of the infant Jesus, they perceived that his first shedding of blood in fulfillment of the law was a prophecy of his final shedding of blood in fulfillment of the law. Even in his infancy, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we are taught to make these connections by no less a student of Scripture than the Apostle Paul. In our epistle reading for this morning from Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul tells us, In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so Paul speaks of this circumcision of Christ. But is he talking about the circumcision of the infant Jesus recorded here in Luke chapter 2? No. 
he says he's talking about a circumcision made without hands, a symbolic circumcision. It is a circumcision that, he says, puts off the body of the flesh. And we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But what is that circumcision of Christ that Paul is talking about, if not the one he received as an infant? Well, we simply have to read a bit further in Colossians 2. And there Paul goes on to say, We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. And so he's talking about a cutting away of trespasses, of sin. And Paul goes on to say that this sin resulted in a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We've broken God's law. It's created a record of debt. The verdict has been handed over. We are guilty. We are condemned to die because we have broken God's law. But then Paul says that God set aside this record of debt. He cut it away. How did he do that? According to Paul, God did this by nailing it to the cross. And so we learn the circumcision of Christ that Paul is talking about is the crucifixion. Somehow the crucifixion of Christ on the cross acted as a symbolic circumcision. Somehow it cut away our sin. How can that be? How does that work? Well, we'll work on that in a moment. But the Christian church took this teaching of the Apostle Paul and they took that one verse in the Gospel of Luke and they perceived that something very significant was prophesied on that eighth day after Christmas when the Word made flesh went under the knife to fulfill God's Word. Somehow that circumcision pointed to the end of Jesus' life. And the two points converge on the cross. So what did Paul and the first Christians understand about circumcision that we don't? Why do we get so squeamish and embarrassed about these bloody rites when they found such gospel richness in meditating upon them? Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's go back to the first time God commanded his people to circumcise. It was our Old Testament reading for this morning, Genesis 17, right in the middle of the story of Abraham. And the first thing God does there is he gives Abram a new name. Abram, exalted father, becomes Abraham, father of a multitude. And so this giving of names harkens back to the creation story when Adam is naming everything. This covenant marks a new beginning, a new creation in Abraham's life. And maybe this helps us understand why the circumcision of Jesus is also the moment when he is given his name. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. The name that the angel told Mary to give him. Circumcision has something to do with new beginnings, new creations, new names, and new missions. Yahweh saves. But back in the story of Abraham, God tells this newly christened Abraham that he is making a covenant with him. He's making a promise to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Hence the name, father of a multitude. Most of you know the story of Abraham thus far. What's the irony here? How many children does the father of a multitude currently have at this point? Exactly one. Some multitude, right? 
And let's remind ourselves of the context here. How did Abraham get this one son? We have to step back a couple chapters. God had already told Abraham he was going to make him a great nation, but Abraham couldn't see how. He was 86. His wife, Sarah, was already advanced in years. She had borne no children this whole time. So Sarah thought, well, God said we're supposed to become a nation, but he hasn't given us children. Ah, Maybe God helps those who help themselves. Maybe he wants us to take the initiative and solve this progeny problem ourselves. Abe, why don't you take my serving woman, Hagar, here, and you can have children with her. That way we'll have kids. And Abraham listens to his wife, and he grasps after forbidden fruit. And Hagar does bear him one son named Ishmael. But surprise, surprise, this causes some conflict in the household. And God tells Abraham that Ishmael is not the child of the covenant. He is not the promised seed of the woman whom God has chosen. God will provide offspring through Sarah. So that brings us to Genesis 17. God reiterates that promise to Abraham. I will multiply you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And this will be the sign of this covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So think about the significance of this. What is the mark of this covenant where God promises to make Abraham a great nation? Abraham will receive a wound in the very organ of procreation. It's not a maiming, it's a wound. It is a sign It is a wound in the flesh. It is a circumcision of the flesh. And based on the context of what Abraham just did in the last chapters, what could such a wound signify? The promises of God will not be fulfilled by man. The promises of God will not be fulfilled by man. The salvation of God will not be accomplished by man. It's God saying to Abraham, you are not going to do this, Abraham. I will do this. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Only God can do these things. And so circumcision is a fleshly reminder of this spiritual reality. The promised son, the promised seed will come by the power of God. And so that's what happens. God miraculously makes the barren womb fruitful. And Sarah bears Abraham a son named Isaac. And through Isaac come the people of Israel. Human flesh could not accomplish this. God did. And so even in this first command for circumcision, the scriptures teach us how to understand it. It is a literal cutting away of human flesh, yes, but it is meant to symbolize a figurative cutting away of human power and arrogance. Now there's an important distinction that we have to uh, make when we're talking about this. What do we mean when we talk about human flesh in this way? Is actual human skin bad? Is our literal flesh a problem? 
is this some kind of strange plastic surgery? No, of course not. This is symbolic. It's all symbolic. The problem is not Abraham's skin. The problem is that sinful desire in Abraham and Sarah. The desire to attempt in their human power what only God can do. Abraham and Sarah tried to have children by the power of their own flesh. It's an attempt to perpetuate themselves. When you think about it, that is actually an attempt to defeat death. They think children will carry on my name, my legacy, carry my memory on into the future. It's an attempt to deliver ourselves from death. But can we save ourselves from death? Is human flesh powerful enough to triumph over death? No. Only God can save. Only God can deliver us from death. And so the importance of trusting the power of God over human power becomes a central theme of the Scriptures. Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. John 1.13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That is why the flesh, human pride and arrogance must be cut away. And God gave His people a literal cutting away of literal flesh as a sign and symbol of this truth that they might not put their trust in their own flesh, in their own power, but in God Himself. But as you know, the lesson didn't take. Humans continued to trust in human flesh. The sons and daughters of Abraham continued to put their trust in human power and pride. The prophets of Israel rebuke the people. They say that though the sons of Israel are circumcised in their flesh, they are not circumcised in their hearts. Sin still holds sway over their will and over their affections. And you and I know that same struggle, don't we? We know what it is to put our hope in our own power and our own ability to save and secure ourselves. It's hit me hard recently. I've felt a lot of failure and disappointment in my work. And it's compounded by a lot of sadness and grief that I still carry. Like a lot of pastors, I seem to depend on people's approval for my self-worth. I feel like if I'm failing the people in my life, or if I feel like they are failing me, I find I get depressed, I get angry, I lose joy, I lose perspective. I stop caring, I stop loving. I think that's what the Bible calls the flesh. Because all of that comes from me operating under the illusion that I am strong enough to hold it all together. Operating under the illusion that I can protect and secure my life by my own power. It's me thinking that I can avoid death. Save myself if I just try hard enough and don't mess things up. Can you relate? Do you put your hope in your flesh, in your competency, in your strength, in your intelligence, in your reputation? Do you live as though you can deliver yourself from all failure and pain and loss if you can just keep it all together? Ultimately, maybe, maybe given enough time, maybe you could even tooth and claw your way out of the grave. 
That's what the Apostle Paul calls living according to the flesh. And you and I both know the flesh is a liar. Human flesh cannot save. Human power cannot redeem. It always fails because it is shot through with sin. We don't realize how weak and powerless we actually are. We don't know that we are dead. Dead in our trespasses. If you want to see how powerless human flesh is, all you have to do is go to a cemetery. Human flesh cannot save you. The flesh is of no help at all. Doesn't the futility of this, the futility of the flesh weigh on you? Aren't you tired of the lies and empty promises? Aren't you tired of warring with the flesh? Again, I'm not talking about your body. I'm talking about sin. Aren't you just tired of it? Don't you wish all the sin and pride and selfishness could be cut away once and for all? Romans 8.3 God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Again, Colossians 2.11 In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the gospel of the circumcision of Christ. That little baby took on our literal flesh. And he bore our sinful flesh, though he himself was without sin. On the eighth day, he was circumcised as the promised seed of Abraham. And he was given the name Jesus because Yahweh saves. The flesh is of no help at all. Yahweh saves. That circumcision was a prophecy. One day that boy would undergo another circumcision. The carpenter's son would be nailed to a cross of wood. And as his literal flesh was cut away from him, so our sinful flesh was being cut away from us. The weakness of human flesh was put on display for the world to see human pride, human power, human hubris. They were nailed to a cross and executed. They were cut away once and for all. Human flesh did not do this. God did this. And on the third day, God raised His Son from the dead in transformed and glorified human flesh. Spirit-filled human flesh. Human flesh freed from the bonds of death and decay and futility. Resurrected humanity ascended into heaven to reign over all creation at the Father's right hand as humanity was in the beginning created to do. And Paul says that we will be raised with Him. That we will be raised like 
him. In fact, Paul is so certain of this that he speaks of it in the past tense. When Christ was raised, we were raised. Because we are united to him by faith in a bond that cannot be broken. And though we still war with the flesh now, when Christ returns, our war will be over and we will be resurrected and we will be as he is now. And so we celebrate the first circumcision of Christ. And we celebrate the second circumcision of Christ. We celebrate all that Christ did to become like us so that he could make us like him. And therefore, our call for today is to live as those who have been circumcised by Christ, circumcised in heart. And to heed what the apostle says in the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let us cry to him now. Our Father, we still wage war with the flesh. We live under the illusion that we can do it, that we can secure our lives, that we can save ourselves, that we can avoid death. But the flesh is of no help at all. Only your Spirit brings life and peace. In the circumcision of Christ on the cross, you cut away sinful flesh once and for all. In the resurrected Christ, you have shown us what you created humanity to be. And in Christ you have promised that you will one day raise us to be as he is and to reign with you forever. So teach us to live no longer according to the flesh, but according to your spirit, according to the gospel that has saved us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.